Welcome everyone, and once again, thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we return to the book of Genesis, chapters 8 and 9, as we discuss three main points. What is a covenant? God's covenant with Noah? And the curses and blessings given to the lineage of Noah's three sons? You can join us by turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, A Covenant-Making God. Let's turn our attention to the Word of the Living God. Genesis chapter 9. I I am going to back us up just a little bit into chapter 8, where Noah and his family steps off of the ark. Let's back up to verse 20 of chapter 8, and then we'll read all the way through uh, chapter 9, and then we need to pray. And so let's, let's begin by reading chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man... From every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine 
and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Cain, Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. All right, please bow with me, and I need to pray. Oh, Lord our God, Father, we, your people, gather, and God, we bow before you, and we lift up our requests right now, God, to ask, please show us your truths. God, we want more of you, and you have told us you will meet with us in your word. You give us more of yourself by us learning your truths, and so, God, we do now expectantly with hunger, oh, God, ask, give us more Show us more of your glory. Show us more of the beauty of what it is you have done in history, how you have worked, the mercy you have shown. Point us to Christ. God, this week as as I've studied, you have brought me to just such sweet joy by the truths in this text. God, it is just my longing that every single believer in this room will just have hearts that are just bursting, bursting with hope and bliss and just deep, solemn, grateful affections for you, for what you have done in Christ. And God, God, I I beg for every soul in here that has not yet repented of their sins, trusted in Christ, I beg, oh God, that you'll show them the gospel through this passage. Show them your glory through what you've done. And God, I pray you save their souls. Please, God, pierce every single heart, Lord, that's here today. Give me help to teach. I need... I need your help to be useful. So please, God, give me your grace. We love you. It is for your glory that we're here and asking. And we pray this through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, When a man and a girl decide to move in together without marrying, um, he'll often say something. She may want to get married, but he may often say something like, Marriage is just a piece of paper. I, you know, I love you. I don't need a piece of paper to love you. I don't need a piece of paper to stay with you. But, but when that happens, let me, let me tell you what's going down. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Number one, I would just say, just even earthly speaking, no relationship is ever going to flourish under those circumstances. Like that's just not the way that God has wired us up. Um, I, I think particularly... Uh, God has wired up ladies that in the context of relationship for there to be a blossoming and a flourishing, there there has to be faithfulness. There has to be relational intimacy and relational intimacy doesn't just never flourishes and blossoms while there's like a door cracked to sneak on the way out. There has to be a security for there to be blossoming. And, And we all know at the root what's going on when there's a refusal for marriage. Like even when everybody pretends it's not there, we all, we all know what's going on. 
Hollywood and their sarcasm. Beautiful examples of love and relationships that they've given us. They, like they just keep showing this over and over again. Uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie made headlines several years back, back when they were still together in an interview that they gave. And in the interview, they shared their views about marriage and they shared all these things about marriage as an outdated idea. We don't need restrictions and obligations in order to stay with one another. Those restrictions, those obligations, it just becomes a, a weight in the relationship and people are just together because they have to be. And you know, the reporters, the journalists, the hip cutting edge writers of the day, oh, they all commended them wrote their articles about how enlightened they are. Oh, they're not bogged down by the ridiculous morals of long ago. No, they're on to something new, something progressive. Oh yeah, I'm sure the purest of love will blossom in that environment. Shocker, a partnership did not last. It went on to sleep with other people. Listen to me, every serious poll ever taken on marriage keeps showing the same thing over and over again. Christian marriage is the happiest, has the most intimacy. When a guy and a girl move in and refuse marriage, we all know the reason why. In the end, he wants to be free to go sleep with someone else when he gets bored. And we see this all the time. If there's been children in the mist, she will be left on her own caring for children with deep wounds, broken trust that come from a craving to be loved unconditionally. Real intimacy is to be fully embraced, fully accepted without fear of rejection. And in that kind of environment, it just never blossoms. He moves on and she is left hurt. And I'm sorry, that is just too boring to be beautiful. It is just too vulgar, too base to, to be wonderful, and it never will be. The proper response when someone says that marriage is just a piece of paper, the response is, no, it's not. It's a covenant, and it's beautiful. The concept of the covenant is that promises are made. Uh, solemn oaths are, are taken where it is decided, I choose to set my love on you. And you need to hear that very careful language. The promise of the marriage covenant is, I choose to set my love on you. Now, you may have been in love when you got married. I was madly in love when I got married. But in biblical marriage, we sometimes see examples of people who had arranged marriages. The biblical marriage covenant is not based on how you feel in just a moment. You may be in love, but it is based on a decision to enter a covenant where you say, I choose, I will love you. And I will feel affection for you. I choose to keep stirring my heart to feel affection for you until the day that one of us dies. That's why we've come up with these, these vows in our weddings. For better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. We pledge those things because it is intrinsic to what the marriage covenant is. And even a modern wedding which wants to cut out all those kinds of things, still pledging it because it is intrinsic to what the marriage covenant is. And when there is no covenant, there's always uncertainty. 
There's always the door left open to one day sneak out. Your love will never flourish in uncertainty and fear. And you might say, okay, pastor, that sounds nice, but there are still marriage covenants that end in divorce. But we see this, the solidity of the covenant is based on the integrity of those who make it. And I've told you all of this to illustrate this. What a tremendous blessing it is that our God is a covenant-making God. He is a God who makes covenants with man. He doesn't leave us uncertain. He doesn't leave us with the fear about, what if God one day changes his mind? What if one day God just gets sick of me? What if one day God's just get fed up with all of it? Like Christians, non-Christians alike, sees the disobedience goes on, just like, like, I've had it, that's enough, and just wipes all of us out. Some of you, some of us, a temptation that the enemy whispers in your ear, you are disgusting. And God could never love you. God gives us security. God gives us certainty in the fact that he makes covenants with us. He gives our souls a sure footing. And as 1 John says, perfect love cast out all fear. You are able to have a real and vibrant relationship with God where your soul knows hope, joy, peace, security, confidence in what you have to come because our God is a God who makes covenants with men and he keeps his covenants. He keeps his promises. God binds himself to covenants with men. In Genesis chapter nine, we see the first time in the Bible that a covenant is extensively explained. It's not the first covenant ever. But it is the first time that God, God goes into an explanation of what a covenant is and really gives us an extended uh, sort of uh, instruction about it. The one true creator God is a covenant-making God. We are shown things in Genesis 9 that will keep pertaining to us forever, throughout eternity. And so as we study through chapter 9, we're, we're going to divide it into three parts. First part will be this. We're going to continue thinking about this truth that our God is a covenant making God. Understand what that means. And then when we come to the covenant with no in Noah's day, we'll understand more about the significance of it. From past studies, you may remember that a covenant is uh, what brief definition, a binding agreement, a binding agreement. If you understand what a contract is, you're most of the way there. You go enter into a business contract, you agree to terms, you sign your name. I believe that the Bible shows covenants to be deeper than a contract, but we get the idea of what a contract is. There's an agreement we both make, even in a business contract, there are business promises that are made. Well, in a covenant, there would be oaths given, promises made, and then oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes in the Bible, we will see a relationship between the two parties in the covenant. And throughout the Bible, we are shown a number of different covenants that God has made with men, promises that God has given of situations, 
We see covenants between humans and other humans. Let me go ahead and tell you that if you do a study of covenants in the Bible, there is disagreement on the number of covenants that God has made. Now, in Jeremiah 33, God was speaking to the Israelites, speaking to the people, centuries after David had lived. But he's talking about his future faithfulness to the covenant that he made with David and the covenant he made with him was to seat one of his seed on the throne of Israel over the kingdom of God. And he was ensuring them that this was certain. And he says this, if you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, then you could break my covenant with David. In other words, you can't. But I want you to see here that what we are shown is that the making of covenants is something that comes out of the character of God. And what I mean by saying it comes out of the character of God is this. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of truth. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God who gives the kindness that he makes promises to people to set his love and blessing on them. And sometimes even the promises unconditionally, regardless of how you behave. God still promises to act in a certain way towards us. Listen, here's here's why this is so beautiful. God does not just willy-nilly change his mind every day. He's not like us. He's not like us that wake up like some days grumpy, some days happy, and aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad our God is immutable, okay? He is unchanging. I can guarantee you this. If God ever woke up in a grumpy mood, by golly, he would deal with me, okay? I would make him grumpy, okay? But he does not just willy-nilly on a different day, like wake up feeling something and just go with his feelings. He is unchanging. And he is a God of truth, faithfulness, mercy, kindness. And out of that, he makes promises where he says to us, I promise to deal with you like this always. I'm never gonna change how I deal with you in these covenants and in these promises that God makes. God chooses to set his love on us. The greatest of all covenants you know that we're getting to is the new covenant in Christ. God promises to love us, care for us, be for us and not against us. Even when we're acting like dopes, even when we are being ridiculous. And when I say that, I want to give the impression that you can just live however you please. And you know, Jesus and mama will always love me no matter what I do, this sort of thing. No, that's, that's a worldly kind of idea where they want to change the character of God and change what the Bible says to be convenient for them. We're, we're clearly told in scripture, the way we enter into the covenant with God, the new covenant in Christ, the way that we are made right with God is by turning from a rebellious attitude, from a rebellious direction, choosing to come to the Lord Jesus and to submit to him as the King of Kings, the Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, that's what the word repent means. Leave rebellion, submit to Christ, trust in Christ, call out to him. And the Bible will even go on to say this. How can you know who the true believers are and those who are not? Look at their lives. Those who live patterns of disobedience are not in Christ. The true believers are those who are living a path of obedience to him. But here is what we are saying. As children of God who strive to live obedience to him, we will still sin. We are like children in a process of growing up and that involves some immaturity. 
And we may even fall into seasons of stupidity. But it is an act of God's grace that on a day-to-day basis, he does not love you based on how you behave each day. When you are adopted as his child, he commits to set his love on you and even to love you enough to discipline you and severely, if need be, to shake us out of our stupidity. Now, when we look at the Bible and study The group that um, I'm a part of uh, believes that the first covenant is a covenant that was actually made before the world was, before the world was even made in eternity past. And I I do want to show you this because it's a part of this larger understanding of who our God is. If you'll maybe throw a pin or something in Genesis 9 and and jump to the New Testament, I want to show you this part. Jump to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. I'm going to roll through four passages real quick. 2 Timothy 1.9. Look and see what we're shown here. Uh, Speaking of the gospel according to the power of God, here's what it says in verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Listen to that language. Granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Jump to Luke chapter 22 for a moment. Luke 22, find verse 28. Jesus is speaking to his apostles uh, about a particular privilege he gave them Uh, But notice the language that's used here. Luke 22, starting in verse 28. So he says to the 12, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom. Now stop there. In the original language, the word granted there, it's a good translation. I'm not knocking the word granted, but understand this. If you saw it in Greek, you would see it's a derivative of the word, the Greek word for covenant. So it is an appropriate way to read this. Just as my father has covenanted me a kingdom, I covenant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jump to John chapter six. John chapter six, find verse 37. John 6, 37, Jesus says this, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. One more, John 17. John 17. Look at the first five verses there. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. 
This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, that's awesome for a lot of different reasons, okay? But here's one of the things to draw out of that. You notice that what is being shown here, okay? Um, some people don't like to use the language of covenant regarding this. And I'm, I'm okay, that's fine. But there are some principles that we have to establish. What we are being shown here is that there was an arrangement made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit even before the world was made. God the Father designed a plan of history and a plan of redemption. He gave to Jesus, the Son, a mission to come and accomplish, to be the Redeemer. Jesus, the Son, gladly and joyfully submitted to the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit was given a joyful part to play in this mission of redemption. And, and you see this part here about the Father giving to Jesus a people to redeem. That's there. Now, those who deny the doctrine of election... I don't know what you do with these passages, like just run away from them, I guess, okay? But what is just clearly shown here is the situation that God the Father gave a people to Jesus to go and redeem. And I call that arrangement a covenant. God the Father gave to Jesus a people to redeem. Jesus's mission is that he will absolutely redeem those people and nothing will stop him. You know, we, we talk about the fact that if you are truly saved, if you are truly in Christ, you can never lose your salvation. But friends, you need to see the reason why. The reason why is Jesus, who upholds the cosmos by the word of his power, has aggressively set to finally and fully save the people that the father has given him. And he will do it. If every snarling demon in the cosmos all set you as their target and they came in to attack you and say, we are, we, are, we are ridding him of his salvation. You listen to me, they will not succeed. Jesus will not relinquish an inch. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. The father has given you to Christ. Jesus has aggressively set, he will redeem you. He will not fail. You have security because of the covenant of God. You have security because God is faithful to his promises. He's not losing you. That kind of security, that's the blessing of covenants. That's the joy. That's the hope that our God is a covenant-making God. It is a glorious thing that our God is willing, is willing to come and enter into covenants with us, with all that we know about our sin. What an amazing thing that God is willing to come and enter into relationships with us like this. We know with certainty because he swears by his own name because there's nothing higher. And that covenant we refer to as the covenant of redemption the covenant that began even before the world was made and is being unfolded as we go through history and one day will be fully and finally realized whenever you step your first foot into the kingdom of heaven and Jesus has brought you all the way home. And then in the Garden of Eden, in the, 
In the course of our uh, teaching through Genesis, one of the things we pointed out is that back in Genesis 2, if you look at verses 15 to 17, another covenant was made. Now, if you look at the language there, what God does give language to Adam there, uh, what we sometimes refer to as the covenant of works. If you obey me, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. The word covenant is not in the text. But listen to Hosea uh, chapter 6 for a moment. You can turn there if you like. You can jot this passage down. Hosea 6, 6 through 7. Listen to how God speaks. So we have this several times in the Bible. A covenant will be made, but the word covenant's not actually in the text. But later on, uh, the Bible's the best interpreter of the Bible. Always remember that, okay? Later on, God will look back and will call that a covenant. So Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. So what do we see there? God made a covenant with Adam, with man in those days. And so we see that kind of thing actually happen a couple times. Later on, God looked back on an event and call it a covenant. Similar kind of thing at the end of Genesis 2. So you remember this, the day that we studied Genesis 2, we had a whole day that we talked about gender, marriage, and sexuality. Do you remember this? One of the things that is shown there is God created the covenant of marriage. He doesn't use the word in Genesis 2. Later on in the book of Malachi, it looks back, calls that a covenant that is there, God the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God established the covenant of marriage. We, his people, are to be a covenant-keeping people. As we continue on in our study, later we're going to see when we come to uh, Abraham, uh, I believe that's in my plans right now, that's coming in two weeks, we're going to see a covenant that God made with Abram. And then uh, we'll see God make a covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And then we will see uh, God make a covenant with David, the one we referred to. But the ultimate covenant is the new covenant in Christ. That old covenant made at Mount Sinai would be fulfilled in Christ. It has passed away. Let me, let me say at least for the believer it has passed away. There's still some like confusion that, that we have. Some things are just kind of difficult to figure out with all of this. But at least for the believer, you're no longer in that old covenant. It has passed away and you are in a new covenant in Christ. So lots of covenants. He's a covenant making and covenant keeping God. And we have one here in Genesis 9. So if you want to flip back there, we're going to specifically consider what goes on here. Point number two the Noahic covenant. Really sophisticated way of sound, sounding way of saying the covenant with Noah. Theologians like to make things really hard. The covenant with Noah. Noah steps off the ark, uh, builds an altar. Uh, by the way, first time in the Bible, we see that. And he offers worship. I, I don't want you to miss, even though we've made brief mention of it so far, I don't want you to miss this. This is God's purposes that Noah steps off and in the gratitude over the grace that he had been shown, he falls and worships. Here's how the Bible will say that. God works for the praise of the glory of his grace. I know that's like a really nice sounding thing, but you need to carefully think through what the words mean. God works in such a way that we will see his glory and the greatest glory, greatest part of his glory that he demonstrates is the grace we have been shown in Jesus Christ. God is drawing worshipers to himself 
who will be so overwhelmed by the mercy and love we've been shown in Christ that we worship him and we worship him forever. Noah experiences a taste of that and he worships God. And then you notice that when he offers up that worship, the Lord smells a soothing aroma and he is pleased. Kind of a simple way of saying the Lord takes delight in the worship of his people, does not need our worship, but delights in the worship of his people. In chapter eight, verse 22, if you notice it, and also in your Bibles, I hope that this is indented or, or set apart in some way that shows that this is poetry or song. Um, God instituted some things here so that for generations to come, the song could be sung and remember principal truths here. Verse 22, he makes the promise that seasons and days, the spinning of the earth, it will continue, but watch the language, while the earth remains. And then in chapter 9, God establishes his covenant with, well, look and see who it is with. He establishes this covenant with man, yes, but do you notice it's not just man. He goes on to say it's with the earth. It's with every living creature on the earth. And if you look at the specific language, like in verse 22 of chapter 9, God's promise is that the earth would never, be, never again be destroyed by flood. He never says that the earth will never be destroyed again. He never says there will never be a flood. But what he does say is there will never be judgment like this, where the earth is wiped out in this way by a flood. But whenever we come to the New Testament, we are shown the day is coming that God brings another judgment, but this one will be the ultimate judgment. The earth is going to be destroyed again, but this time not by water, but by fire. You, you can sort of see the, the beautiful symbolism and things that God puts there. On the day of Christ's return, Christ's exaltation in this, and we believers are caught up to Christ, the earth is going to be destroyed by fire, and then the beautiful ending of the entire Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, God is making new heavens and a new earth, no longer corrupted by sin in any way, shape, or form. We see some ways that the earth is different, but all of that is even sort of shadowed here. But God makes the promise to sustain the earth and not destroy it by flood. That's the main point of the covenant. But also notice Several elements of instructions and laws are given along with the covenant. Now, don't misunderstand. This is what we call an unconditional covenant. So sometimes covenants that God makes with uh, humans is conditional, okay? So like the covenant that God made of, of works, if you obey me, you will live. If you disobey or die, it's conditional upon that. Other covenants that God makes are unconditional, meaning it doesn't matter how you behave, I am keeping my promise. This is another one of those unconditional covenants, but along with it, there are instructions and laws, even given before the law of Moses. We'll talk about some of that as we come to the law. But notice verse three, several elements. For the first time in creation, God commissions the eating of animals. Yes, original creation in the garden in the purest and most beautiful form of human life, yes, we were designed to be vegetarians in that sense. 
no, it is not okay to use that as an argument to say we should all be vegetarians now. And if you really love Jesus, then you would be. No, God commissions the eating of animals. And, but, but do track this, okay? So you may be a hunter, like I am, and I really, really enjoy it. But even if you are, like we have to, we have to admit the purest, most beautiful way that life could exist would be no shedding of blood, no taking of life. I, I disagree with animal rights activists on about 999 issues, but there is at least one that they, I do think they have a point in. In the shedding of blood, there is a kind of brutality. There is a kind of savagery, a savagery that will not exist in the kingdom of heaven to come that is, that is beautiful and glorious and without sin. And, and then we could say, well, well, wait a second, but if it's you know, brutal, then, then why do we have it here? That's part of the point. I, I, I think part of the point of what God is doing here and why later on in the law, God will establish a system where millions of gallons of blood will be shed for the atonement of sin, and it has to happen, part of the brutality is, is a daily reminder, this is a savage world. This is a brutal world. This is not a happy, hunky-dory, everyday, peachy kind of world. It's savage. Sin is savage. And the shedding of blood that has to take place, and I would argue it has to take place for human life to continue to go on. God not only says you can shed animals' blood, it's a necessity for life to go on. This is a part of what this world is now. But for the first time, God commissions it. You, you begin to see why, why we've pointed out several times, the world after the flood is shown to be quite different than the world before the flood. And the world was drastically different before Genesis 3. A post-flood world is different. But along with the commissioning of the eating of animals, notice that there is a stipulation given as well. We will eat meat, but watch this. We are not to consume the blood of an animal. Now, we will talk about this a lot when we come to the book of Leviticus. And so I'll save most of what could be said uh, for there, but let me only point out this one part. In verse five, notice why he says this. The reason why we are not to consume blood is because blood is symbolic of the life of the animal and the life of every animal and every man belongs to God. Much, much more the law will say when we come there, but this is where God begins. God commissions the killing of animals. But then along with this, he also adds in teaching concerning man once again. Uh, look, look at verse six. Notice this phrase put into poetry or song. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Human life is once again highlighted. We are shown that man has been made in the image of God. And this is really significant. Because we saw back in Genesis 1 that we were made in the image and likeness of God, but then the fall came. There could be the question, did we ruin it? Is the image of God gone? No, here we are post-fall, post-flood, and God is once again highlighting humanity is made in my image and likeness. And then we're even told some things that go along with that. If an animal or a man 
takes the life of another human, then that person is to be put to death. Now, sometimes people will argue with Christians and they'll say, if you all were really pro-life, you would be opposed to all war and you would be opposed to capital punishment, which is the death penalty. But if you notice, God actually uses different reasoning here. It's precisely because human life has value and sacred dignity that we are shown that if murder takes place, the unlawful taking of another human, that murderer is to be put to death, even an animal. Okay, so if a bear attacks a human, there's not to be the whole, oh, the bear doesn't know any better, pet him. No, he says it's taken human life. And because human life has value, then there is to be the putting to death. It is not murder whenever a judge issues the, 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 the death penalty. Uh, it, uh, this also means that there is a time for war, not for gold or conquest, but in the protection of innocent lives, there's a time for war. This is why in the law, God will come and give instructions concerning self-defense, home invasion, things like this. Why? It's because of the value of human life. If human life is unlawfully taken, then there is to be justice dealt. And in fact, later on, we'll see God say that if a society fails to deal out the right justice, God holds them accountable for blood guiltiness in not executing his justice. And all of it is highlighted by the value of human life. And then notice one last thing about this covenant. God gives a sign of the covenant. Now, this is a pretty regular part of other covenants as well. Uh, not every single covenant had a sign that went with it. Uh, the covenant with David, there was never a sign established. Uh, but there are many covenants where a sign was given as a reminder. So, for instance, later in Genesis, if you read, Jacob and Laban uh, will enter into a covenant with each other. And the covenant was real simple. We won't hurt each other. And Jacob will not marry other wives. But what they did is on the road that led in between those two, their two destinations, they piled up a heap of stones and they said this, when one of us passes by the other, we will remember our covenant and remember the promises that have been made there. And, and listen, friends, we need this as humans. We are a forgetful people. It, it's really one of our great weaknesses. We can be brought to great devotion and worship at a moment, and, and then later on forget and lose that. God established signs of covenants as a way of reminding us of the covenant and restirring that worship that is there. And so the sign of the covenant, of this covenant with Noah that God makes with the earth is the bow. Now, you, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about a rainbow. You look in the clouds, certain times, rainstorm, you look in there, you see the rainbow, but don't miss the imagery. The imagery is that of a bow and arrow, a bow in the hands of a warrior. And you kind of got this imagery of God hanging up the bow for a time. And, and then notice the way that God speaks of it. He doesn't say what I always thought he said. You ever do that with the Bible? <laughs> Like you got something you think the text says and then you read the very careful language and it's different. He doesn't say what I've always thought he said until this week when I saw it very closely. Here's what he says. He doesn't say when you see the, you see the bow, then remember my covenant. What does he say? When I see the bow, I will remember my covenant. 
Are you saying God needs reminders? No, not at all. When you and I see the bow, we take comfort in the fact that God never forgets his promises. But that's where the emphasis is put. The emphasis is put on, I remember my covenants. I keep my covenant promises. And the sign is a reminder. The sign gives security. It brings us to hope once again. Listen to me very carefully. The sign does not bring the blessing, but it preaches the blessing. And I say that because we have signs of our new covenant in Christ. What are they? First sign of the new covenant in Christ. Baptism. Baptism is a reminder of the gospel. It preaches the gospel, preaches the new covenant. And and that's pretty important for anybody who has the misunderstanding that thinks that baptism saves a person. No, no, no. The sign doesn't save. The sign doesn't bring the blessing. It preaches the blessing. It shows it. If you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, you need to be baptized. It's commanded by God. And when you undergo it, you're reminding yourself and you're showing everybody who watches with misty eyes and is moved by God saving another soul and you're demonstrating to the angels you're contributing to their worship. I just find that such an amazing thing that the Bible shows. You are contributing to the worship of the angels and you are standing in defiance to the enemy who watches as well. You are displaying a sign of the covenant. I have died with Christ, but I am raised up. I will die the death of this life, but I will rise again. You're displaying a sign of the covenant. And this is also important for the different groups that baptize babies that don't necessarily preach that those babies are saved by baptism, but sometimes there's the language of they're welcomed into the covenant community. Uh Uh-uh. The sign doesn't bring the blessing. The sign preaches the blessing. It shows the blessing. And then secondly, what other sign of the new covenant do we have? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper doesn't save you and the Lord's Supper doesn't feed you the literal body of Jesus so that you can accumulate merit with God. And if you accumulate thousands of bites of Jesus, you get less time off in an imaginary purgatory, which is what Catholicism teaches. What does the Lord's Supper do? This do in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper preaches the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, so long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You enter the new covenant by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. But every time we watch these signs, every time we participate in the symbols of the covenant, we're reminded once again of God's covenant. He doesn't forget. He doesn't break them. You take the Lord's Supper and it is rejoicing once again. My God remembers his covenant with me. The covenant making God is a covenant keeping God. And then last point, number three, we'll go pretty quickly on this one. Number three, curses and blessings. In the latter part of the chapter, we follow a brief episode after the ark. Noah, the righteous man who lived great obedience to God, steps off the ark in a world freshly cleaned of sin and he spoils it and he spoils it. Listen, friends, this is why, this is why God will not allow any person to enter the kingdom of heaven, even the most moral of humans. If we still have sin, if you are not saved, cleansed, and then one day glorified, If God let you into the kingdom before you were glorified, 
you would ruin it. John the Baptist, Jesus said, greatest mere human ever lived. Remember whenever he said, he who is least in the kingdom is greater even than John the Baptist. Even as great as obedient as John the Baptist was, if God let him into the kingdom of heaven without being saved, cleansed, and glorified, John the Baptist walk in there and ruin it. Even the smallest amount of sin, if it were to enter that kingdom to come, would spoil it. Noah farms, grows a vineyard, makes wine, gets drunk. In his drunken stupor, I'm not trying to make this funny, but he strips naked. I don't know what else to say. And since that day in this culture, or every culture, humans have fallen to this sin, all kinds of different sins, Noah sins. And in the midst of his sin, one of his sons, Ham, walks and sees Noah naked. Now, we don't know exactly what happens here. There's been all kinds of speculation about what Ham may or may not have done. Sometimes there's reference to sexual perversion or maybe lust. Okay, Whatever it is, some kind of dishonor takes place. I think it may be just as simple as serious disrespect to his father is given and mocking him in what comes. And he goes outside and tries to get his brothers to join in this dishonoring. Noah wakes up, understands what has happened. And Noah speaks a word of prophecy. By the utterance of the Holy Spirit, he speaks curses and blessings. The cursing is on Ham. Now, Jumping ahead a little bit into next Sunday, when we come to Genesis chapter 10, the point of that genealogy is to see the lineage of these sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the lineage of them, and even to learn where they ended up. But Genesis 10 will show us that Ham's descendants make up most, not all, but most of the future enemies of Israel. The Canaanites, you notice two times we were shown that the son of Ham was Canaan. That becomes the Canaanites who occupied the land of Israel that later on they would enter. The Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, uh, Hivites, Egyptians, Philistines, Assyrians, Ninevites in Jonah's day, and Babylonians all come from the line of Ham. And that was significant to the Israelites concerning the first time they heard these words of Genesis. Because remember, Genesis is about creation and then through history But when did God give this message to the people? He gave it to Moses, we believe, in the season of wandering in the wilderness and then read this to the people as they're on their way journeying to the banks of the Jordan where they would then cross over and take possession of the land of the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, Philistines, etc., etc. God is showing some of the reasons why behind. God even tells them, you are my weapon of wrath. I am using you to bring judgment on these peoples who have fiercely defied my laws. But then notice what is said of Shem in that section 25 to 27. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Shem. That that may sound simple, but it is profound. Ham's seed would go on to worship idols, false gods, and then be trapped in it. They would never leave it. There would never be a group who left that disobedience 
um, except for the rare occasions of like the, the repentance in Jonah's day, uh, the Syrophoenician woman in Jesus's ministry who, who comes to faith, okay? Like you have a couple sporadic, but as a people, they stay in idol worship. But that's not the case with Shem's line. Shem's line would have the Lord, the creator, as their God. And it is the line of Shem that leads to Abram, And today, whenever we use the term Semitic peoples, okay, it comes from this name, Shem. Abram's line will lead to Israel. Israel's line will lead to the Messiah who came to the earth through this people and the message of the gospel preached through them. Once again, significance of genealogies. The genealogies are God saying, I keep my covenant promises. And then notice what is said of Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. It's a bit mysterious, but I take that to mean Japheth's blessing will come in his connection to Shem. And when you think about that in the way it plays out in the Bible, Shem leads to Abram, Abram to Christ, in Christ, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation being gathered into the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. Once again, every time you turn on the news, every time you study geography and social studies, you are seeing Genesis 9, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, all being played out right in front of your eyes. We have in here God's explanation of the covenant. Let me, let me bring us to a close. And if you'll let me just kind of at the end here, speak in a bit of symbolism for a moment. Some people think that this is taking symbolism too far. At the very least, let me use it as illustration. There is a shadow of the greater redemption here in this covenant. God set his bow in the cloud as a warrior hangs his bow when he's not using it. I believe that the symbolism here is that the bow of God's wrath, which by the way is biblical language, the bow of God's wrath in the large way. God on a daily basis executes small amounts of wrath in temporal situations, but we're talking wrath in a major way. The bow of God's wrath was hung for a season of time. And God says, I'm not picking it up again until it's time. And then the Lord Jesus, whenever he went to the cross, and we talk about the fact that he bore our wrath for our sins, It is like the father picked up the bow of wrath and aimed the arrow of justice at the earth and let loose that arrow. But instead of striking me, it struck and pierced Christ. Christ stood in my place. The wrath that I am owed, Jesus took on himself, took our wrath for completely satisfying the wrath of God. And it's as though that that bow of wrath has been hung back up once again and will not be picked up until that last day when God's wrath is executed for the final, ultimate judgment, when Christ will return with finality. Friends, the, the, the flood shows us this. Contrary to sappy religion and incorrect thoughts about God, in boldness, And in fierceness, God will judge the world. Liberal Christianity and just worldly thoughts about God are basically saying all the time, oh, come on, God's not really like that. I'm a good guy. I cannot tell you how many gospel conversations I've had 
where they may not say it just like this, but really the root belief is, come on, that's not really who God is. I'm a good guy. God's never going to do that to me just because I don't do your salvation thing. Listen to me. The flood is, the New Testament comes in Jude and 2 Peter and says this. If God did not spare the ancient world in Noah's day, then he will not spare the earth on the final day. The flood is God showing he really will execute full wrath and judgment on all who dishonor the son, on all who reject Christ. And so you listen to me this morning. Do not hang your life from the faulty belief that God really won't do what he says he will do. That is insecure footing to stand on. There is a covenant you can have with God. There is a covenant of peace, grace, and redemption offered to you by the blood of Jesus Christ. He welcomes you into this covenant if you will come to him the way that he says you must. You enter this covenant not by your church attendance, not by religious deeds or how much money you put in that offering plate. You enter this covenant by turning your heart from rebellion, trusting in Christ, calling on his name. And whenever you are joined to him truly, you are secure in Christ because the covenant-making God is a covenant-keeping God. That is your only hope. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, I ask, O oh God, that you bring us to see the grace that you've given. Uh, Father, all of the beautiful, beautiful truths that are here, regardless of how it came out of my lips and whether it was hurt as it ought to be. I, I just ask, oh God, um, make up for all of the mistakes, Father, that I've made in preaching and all distractions and such. And please, God, bring these truths to be believed, loved, and a source of joy. Comfort your people, strengthen and encourage, and any who are lost in the room right now, bring them to salvation. Bring them into covenant with yourself by them trusting in Christ. Please give us your grace as we leave. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, A Covenant-Making God. Join us again next week as we continue to work through the book of Genesis. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.